Let's turn to Genesis chapter 29. We'll be starting with verse 31. And, And while you're turning there, I want you to think about how valuable it would be to have certain knowledge of the future. Think of how valuable that would be. Because if you had certain knowledge of the future, then you'd know how you should live, right? You'd know what you should do, what you shouldn't do. A couple examples. What if passengers who had bought tickets on the Titanic and who were boarding the Titanic suddenly discovered certain knowledge that the Titanic was going to hit an iceberg and was going to sink. It would change what they were doing. They would get off the Titanic, right? They would urge other people to get off the Titanic. Another example. What if investors who knew that Google stock was selling for, what, $50 U.S. a couple, many, many years ago probably by now, what if they had certain knowledge that that was going to be going to $1,200? So that would change what they would do. They would invest in the stock. They would encourage other people to to buy that stock. More sober analogy. What if you were a Jewish man or woman living in Germany before World War II? And what if you had certain knowledge of what Hitler was going to do to you and to your people? That would change what you would do. That would change how you'd live. You would leave Germany. You would encourage other people to flee Germany. So can you feel how important it would be if you could have certain knowledge about the future? Okay, but can anybody have certain knowledge about the future? The Bible says yes. God in his word says yes, we can have certain knowledge about the future. Not everything about the future, But the most important parts about the future, we can have certain knowledge about. And the reason we can have certain knowledge about the future is because of a truth we're going to see taught about God in today's passage. Genesis chapter 29, verses 31, all the way through to chapter 30, verse 24. Now to dig into this passage, let's start with this question. What is Moses' main point in these Verses. Now, let me give you some background first, then we'll dig into the passage. Here's the background. Last week, we saw that Jacob was sent north to his grandfather's hometown, Abraham's hometown, in order to marry a hometown girl. Go north, Jacob, find a wife. So Jacob went north, and we saw last week, from what Moses emphasizes in that passage, that it's clear that Jacob is not praying for God's help, is not asking for God's guidance, is not seeking God's blessing in this. He's just relying on himself to find a wife, and the results, as we saw last week, were disastrous. He loved Rachel. He thought he was going to marry Rachel, but Laban, Rachel's father, deceived him at the last minute, had him, crazy story, marry the older daughter who wasn't as attractive, Leah, and so then then Jacob decides to marry Rachel after that, so instead of Going to this place, working seven years, coming back with the woman that he loves, he has to work many more years, comes back with two women, one of whom he doesn't love. And what we're going to see in today's passage is that the result of that was disastrous for Jacob's family life. In today's passage, we're going to see God giving children to Jacob. That's a minor point, but the overall emphasis in this passage is what a heartbreaking 
tragic family life dynamic resulted because of Jacob's independence from God when he went to find his wife. And Moses emphasizes that in nine ways. I'm just going to walk right through the passage. I want you to see these and feel these. First, Moses emphasizes that Jacob does not love Leah. Remember, Jacob came back with two wives, Rachel, who he loved, Leah, who he did not love. Look at verses 31 to 35. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, the word hated in the Old Testament has a broad range of meaning. Sometimes it can mean, as in this passage, simply that somebody is not loved. And that's what's going on here. So God saw that Leah was not loved by Jacob. And and don't miss the mercy of God here. He saw that. And what does he do? He gives her a baby. He has her get pregnant. He opened her womb. But God allowed Rachel not to get pregnant. But notice the emphasis. Leah was unloved. Verse 32, And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Let me explain the word Reuben. In Hebrew, that means see a son. Okay, But, but feel the pain that Leah is expressing here. She says, now my husband will love me. He wasn't loving her. She's hopeful that now he will. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Now Simeon, means or sounds like the Hebrew word for hearing something. And so God has heard that Leah is hated, is not loved. But again, feel the pain. This is another child. Jacob is still not loving her. Another child, he's still not loving her. Verse 36, again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, his name is called Levi. Now, Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attach, attached. But again, notice Moses' emphasis here. This time, my husband is going to feel some attachment to me. I've borne him three sons. Verse 35. Again, she conceived, or she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Okay, Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise, and Leah is longing that maybe with this fourth child, Jacob will start to love her so that she'll be able to, to praise the Lord. So, so can you see Moses' emphasis here? He wants all of us readers to feel Leah's pain. Year, year after year after year, child after child after child, Jacob is not loving her. Jacob has no attachment with her. Think of the the tragedy, the heartbreak about that. I mean, think of a marriage where the wife loves the husband, wife cares for the husband, but the husband doesn't care for the wife, doesn't have any attachment to the wife. That's what's going on here between Jacob and Leah. Do you feel that? Now, this is how Moses continues the emphasis. Second emphasis Moses brings. Rachel envies Leah, chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, 
she envied her sister, Leah. Imagine Rachel seeing Leah get pregnant first time, second time, third child, fourth child. Rachel's not pregnant, not pregnant, not pregnant, not pregnant. Imagine the, the envy and the jealousy that could rise up in that situation. So again, think about Jacob's two wives. One is feeling unloved, completely uncared for by Jacob, and the other wife is feeling envious at the other one. This is a problem, and it just gets worse. Third, Rachel blames Jacob. Second half of verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. So Rachel's upset. She hasn't gotten pregnant. She blames Jacob. So again, see what's going on here. Not only is Leah feeling unloved by Jacob, he has no attachment to her, and Rachel is envious of Leah, now Rachel is blaming Jacob. Okay, it's just this triangle here of pain and sorrow and heartbreak in this family. doesn't stop there, though. Fourth, Jacob is angry with Rachel. Chapter 30, verse 2. Are you getting all this? Okay. Now, good news will come in the chapters ahead, but just hang on here. Uh, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It's not that Jacob has withheld sexual relations with Rachel. Jacob knows that God, in his sovereign love and wisdom, has withheld a child from Rachel up to this point. But he's angry because she's blaming him for something he has no control over. So again, can you see the picture Moses is painting? Yes, God's giving children, but what pain, what conflict, what jealousy, envy, disappointment, heartbreak is going on in this family. But it gets even worse. Fifth, Rachel encourages Jacob to have a child by her servants. Verses 3 through 6. Then she, Rachel, said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Now, the son is named Dan, which sounds like the Hebrew word for judge. And when Rachel says God has judged her, he doesn't mean God's condemning her. He means he's vindicated her. Finally, she has a, a child. And, and here's how this works. In the surrounding culture, this is not God's plan for marriage. But in the surrounding culture, what the people would do is if a, if a wife hadn't been able to have children, she could give her maidservants to her husband, and the child that would be born from that union would legally be hers. So this is not God's plan for marriage, though, because think of what this means. Bad enough that Jacob is, has married two women, Leah and Rachel, and is having sexual relations with those two women. Now he's having sexual relations with a third woman. So this is what the, the surrounding godless cultures did. This was not God's plan for marriage. And can you see how things are getting worse and worse and worse? Now, more drama, more jealousy going on, more pain and difficulty. Sixth, Rachel and Leah are wrestling 
against each other. Verses 7 and 8. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Now, Naphtali sounds like the Hebrew word for wrestling. So now instead of Rachel and Leah loving each other, you know, caring for each other, supporting each other, they're wrestling with each other. There's envy before, now there's wrestling, it's escalating. And with this second child adopted by Rachel, Rachel thinks she's prevailed. She's prevailed over Leah finally. And remember, this is going on year after, I mean, how many children have been born at this point? This is year after year after year after year of pain and emptiness and disappointment and heartbreak. This is a horrifying family dynamic going on here. Seventh, Leah encourages Jacob to have children by her servant. So Leah's going to get in on the act. Verses 9 through 13. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Gad sounds like the Hebrew word for good fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher, which sounds like the Hebrew word for happy. But now notice, here's a fourth woman in the household that Jacob's having sexual relations with. Now, this is, this is not a high point in Jacob's spiritual life. Okay, let's just make it really, really clear here. This is far from God's plan. You might wonder, I mean, didn't God meet Jacob just a few chapters ago and transform Jacob's life so he was trusting God and worshiping God? And yes, he did. But saved people can stumble. Saved people can sin, right? All of us who've been saved stumble and sin. Saved people repent of their sin and turn back to God, and we will see that coming in the chapters ahead. But don't, I mean, this is, an, this is an ugly season in Jacob's spiritual life, having all this happening with his family. There's no way to whitewash it. It's just the way it is. This is, this is a tragic, heartbreaking story. Moses wants us to be horrified at what's happening in the family. So if you're feeling some level of horror, you're tracking with, with Moses. But it gets worse. Eighth, Leah buys from Rachel the right to sleep with Jacob, verses 14 through 18. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, Leah's firstborn, went and found mandrakes, it's kind of a fruit, in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. She was maybe hungry. But Leah said to her, is it a small matter you have taken my husband? Wow. Where'd that come from? Bam. Can I have some fruit, please? You already took my husband. Ooh. Would you take my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, 
and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Issachar means wages. So notice what's going on here. Years after this marriage is going on, Leah is, is angry still at Rachel. Now, it may be that Rachel's thinking back about, or that Leah's thinking back about how way, way, way back at the beginning, she was supposed to marry, or her father had her marry Jacob, and then, and then Jerry Makeup, then Jacob married Rachel after that, and Rachel ended up stealing Jacob's heart and so stole. Maybe that's what's in her mind, or maybe, maybe Rachel's just had made an ultimatum to Jacob, stop sleeping with Leah. Who knows what's going on? But anyway, you can feel the pain in this passage when Leah says, You've taken away my husband? Is that a small matter? So we're seeing the pain, the turmoil, the friction. This is completely opposed to what God's plan is for marriage. This is completely opposed to what God's plan is for sexual relations. I mean, God created sexual relations for a a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage as a way to, to bond and to bless each other and to enjoy each other, and it's a beautiful gift from God. That was God's plan. Not this. This is ugly. This is painful. This is competition. This is far from what God had intended sex to be. Ninth, Leah still does not feel honored by Jacob. After all of this, verses 19 through 21, Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So finally, Leah conceives again and says she hopes that this time Jacob will honor her, which means that all these years, she's never felt any honor from Jacob whatsoever. So, so painful here. She names her son Zebulun, which sounds like the Hebrew word for honor. And she also gives birth to Dinah, which sets the stage for a tragic story we're going to read about in the next next weeks. So those are my nine points. Do you see how Moses, while he's describing children being given to Jacob, his main emphasis on the pain and the turmoil, the horrifying Uh, emptiness and disappointment and friction, the disaster of what Jacob's family life is. But there's three more verses in this section. Tenth, God allows Rachel to get pregnant. Now, these last three verses say nothing about the pain in the marriage, but they show how God finally allows Rachel to get pregnant and that she wants another baby as well. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. God saw in the very first verse that Leah was unloved, gave her a child. God heard Rachel's prayer, gave her a child. God remembered Rachel here. Rachel and Leah, in some ways, were, were victims of this marriage. Their father, Laban, simply sold them to... I mean, Laban wasn't a great, great guy. We'll read more about him next week in the next chapter. So they're suffering in this, and it, I just want you to see, there's an undercurrent of God's mercy through this passage, too. Don't miss it here. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her. She was praying about this and opened her womb. Finally, she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. 
and she called his name Joseph, which sounds like the Hebrew word for taken away, and also means, may he add. So she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. So she has a son, Joseph, and she's longing for another son, which God will give her five chapters later. We'll get there in chapter 35. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this section. Now, except for these last three verses, I hope you see the, the main point Moses is making here. Can you see what he emphasizes in this passage? He could have just said, you know, they had all these children. But he goes into great detail because he wants us to see how horrifying Jacob's family life was. It's tragic what is going on here. So that's the the main emphasis that Moses brings in these verses. But now let's kind of step back and say, okay, so how does this passage, all this pain in family life, how does this fit into Moses' overall aim in the book of Genesis? How does this fit the big, the big picture? And let me just remind you of where we've, what we've seen in Genesis so far, where the book is going, and then I'll try to describe how this passage fits in. All the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, remember God creates in such a beautiful way, showing his perfect goodness, overflowing generosity and love and compassion, flawless wisdom, infinite power. It's clear from Genesis 1 and 2 that we should obey God instantly and immediately, without any hesitation. That's chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, we sin. Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent, and they fall for his temptation, and they do what we've all done. They decided, they're going to decide for themselves how they Live. They're going to make their own choices with how they're going to live. That's what they did, that's what we've all done, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And that brought them and all of us and the whole world under God's curse, because God is just. So the, the whole world at that point was under God's curse, facing God's judgment and punishment forever. Tragic development in Genesis chapter 3. But also in Genesis chapter 3, we have God promising salvation. This is amazing. God promises that one of Eve's offspring is going to crush the serpent's head, is going to destroy Satan's work, one of Eve's offspring. And the rest of the Bible makes it clear who that is. It's Jesus. Jesus came, died on the cross, paid for the sins of all those who would trust him, and by dying on the cross, paying for sin, he crushed the serpent's head. He destroyed Satan's work so that people could be saved and transferred out from being under God's curse to being in God's blessing. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, there's the promise of salvation. Yes, there's sin. The world is under God's curse. But God is making a way for people to be saved. Genesis chapter 3. Tragically then, though, chapter 4 through 11, we see sin spreading even more throughout the world. Even though there's the flood in Genesis 7, the flood that took place in Noah's time, you think, oh, that's going to help everybody wake up to what's going on. Nope. After that, sin just kicked right back in again. By the time you get to chapter 11, you can't read about any godly people anywhere described by Moses on the earth in that chapter. But then God raises up Abraham, and God gives Abraham an astonishing promise. He says, through one of your offspring, one of your offspring, people from every family group, people from every ethnic group, every racial group, people from every family group are going to be transferred from being under God's curse 
to receiving God's blessing, being forgiven, being reconciled to God, being loved by God, having the heart-filling joy of knowing God. That's going to happen through Abraham. So here's, here's another promise. And again, that is also talking about Jesus. We have Jesus in Genesis 3.15. We have Jesus in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Salvation is coming. Jesus is going to crush the serpent. He's going to purchase salvation for men and women from every ethnic group. That's what happens when God calls Abraham. And then in the next chapters of Jacob, we see God repeating that promise and securing that promise through the lives of Abraham, the life of Isaac, and I hear the life of Jacob. So how does today's passage, where we read about Jacob's disastrous family life and the birth of Jacob's children, how does this fit into God's overall or Moses' overall theme in the book of, of Genesis. And it's because in this story, God gives us another instance of an obstacle that could completely disrupt God's plans and how God overcomes that obstacle and fulfills the promises that he's made. Remember, I mentioned that God had promised to Abraham, let's just read it, I want to show you Here's two promises that God made to Abraham that I want you to notice. This is back in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And now notice this next promise. And I will make of you a great nation. Abraham had no children at that point. Wife was barren. I will make of you a great nation crucially important promise. This would be the people of Israel through whom the Messiah would be born. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you and one of your descendants all the people groups of the earth, all the families, all the ethnic groups will be transferred. People from every one of those ethnic groups transferred from being under God's curse, to being under God's blessing. So there's the promise. And I think Moses' point in today's passage is to help us see once again, nothing can stop God's promise. That in spite of Jacob's disastrous marriage, in spite of this horrifying family dynamic, which is just an absolute mess, God fulfills his original promise to Abraham by giving Abraham's grandson, Jacob, a bunch of kids. And by having one of them be the one whose great, 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 great grandson would be Jesus, the serpent crusher. Now to see this, look at this list of the sons God gives to Jacob. I found this really helpful. So through Leah, you got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, from whom the Levitical priests come, and then Judah, from whom Jesus is born. First four sons right there. And then Rachel through her maidservant Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali. Then Leah through her maidservant Zilpah, Gad and Asher. Then Leah again, Issachar and Zebulun and Dinah, who's a daughter. And then finally God, he, hears, he remembers Rachel, he hears her prayers, gives her Joseph. And then five chapters later, she will also have Benjamin. 
And so these sons, again, Dinah's going to have a crucial role, a tragic role in the next couple chapters, but these sons make up the nation of Israel. And I want you to see this map. Kind of complicated all the arrows, but bear with me here. So Reuben, the tribe of Reuben down the far right bottom. Okay, Again, this is a map of Palestine, a map of Israel. Simeon way down at the very, very bottom, light, light blue. Okay, Levi, remember the Levites, they were not given an allotment of land because God wanted to make the point that God is their inheritance because God's far more important than land. So that's the Levites. Judah, the tribe Jesus was born from, bright green down lower center. Dan, way, very, very top, little brown section there. Naphtali, right below Dan there. Gad, all the way over to the far right across the Jordan River, bright yellow. Asher, up there top left, blue. Issachar, right below Naphtali and, and, and Zebulun, right there. And Zebulun, right up there to the left, right below Naphtali, bright green. Uh, Dinah, the daughter, doesn't have a tribal representation here. Joseph, remember, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, two tribes right there in the center. And then Benjamin, right below Ephraim uh, in the center there. But what I want you to see is that in spite of Jacob's ugly family life, full of sin, envy, jealousy, competition, a complete disruption, complete distortion of God's plan for marriage, God's plan for family. God was faithful to fulfill his promise. God is going to make Abraham a great nation. Nothing is going to stop that from happening. Also, I want you to see that God is faithful to provide for the birth of the Messiah because, as I said earlier, Jesus is born through the line of Judah, number four, the fourth son there from Leah. And I want you to see this from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Then I'll skip down to verse 16. Matthew 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, this is the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, there it is, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, there's Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Jacob, different Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So in this passage we see God does not let Jacob's disastrous marriages, family life, get in the way of his promises of salvation. We've seen obstacle after obstacle overcome in the book of Genesis. Here's another obstacle. We've talked about how God's sovereignty is like a steamroller. It just rolls right over and crushes any obstacle that's brought up against it. God's promises will be fulfilled. Nothing can stop them. When God promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, God made Abraham a great nation. When God promised that through Abraham, there's going to be a Messiah born, the Messiah is born through the line of Judah. Every one of God's promises was fulfilled. Every one of God's promises will be fulfilled. So, what does this mean for us? What's our takeaways from today? Let me give you three to walk away with this morning. First, I want you to just have sinking deep into your soul and spirit and just resonating in your heart. God will fulfill all of his promises. 
nothing can stop God. Sin can't stop God. Satan can't stop God. Circumstances can't stop God. Nothing can stop God from fulfilling all his promises. And one place that's taught explicitly is Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Here God is talking. This is so powerful. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Do you feel that? Whoa. Declaring the end, the future, from the beginning. God declares the future. And from ancient times in the past, things not yet done, things that are still in the future, they're still going to happen, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my good purpose. Nothing can stop God from fulfilling his promises. Not just because he knows what will happen, but because he has planned what will happen. And on that basis, he has promised what will happen. This is crucial because God will fulfill all of his promises. We can have certain knowledge about the future. We can know for sure what's going to happen in the future. So let's understand what God has promised for the future. There's lots of promises. Here's some I wanted to, to highlight before you today. This is absolutely certain. You can bank on these promises. God will save people from every ethnic group. God's purpose for creating the world is to display his glory through Jesus the Savior by saving men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe. This is God's purpose. He has promised to do this. Nothing can stop that from happening. It will take place. He will save people from every ethnic group. God will forgive the sins of all who trust Christ. You can be absolutely certain because you are trusting Jesus Christ, your sins are all forgiven. And if you would trust Jesus Christ, your sins would all be forgiven. It's promised. Third, God will punish forever those who do not trust Christ. We love you too much to not tell you that. If you're not trusting Christ, it is absolutely certain that your sins are going to be punished forever. Absolutely certain. And you need Jesus. And Jesus came to save sinners like you and like me. Fourth, God will right every wrong. Some of you have been wronged. Some of you are being wronged. And some of you will be wronged. God will right every wrong. Justice will be done. God will welcome all who trust Christ into eternal joy. Put your hope there. That's the rock. Everything else is sinking sand. Jobs can change. Relationships can change. Families can change. Health can change. If you're trusting Christ, you're going to be welcomed into eternal joy forever. 
That's your beautiful destiny, believer. Put your hope there. And then God will reward every act of obedience, every moment of suffering, every battle against sin with more joy in him forever. You can have certain knowledge of the future. Here it is. These will all happen. If you were on the Titanic and you heard that it was going to be sinking, you wouldn't get on, you'd get off. If you heard that Google stock was going to 1200, you'd buy it. Right? If you were a Jew living in Germany before World War II and you knew what was going to happen, you'd flee, you'd leave. You've just heard certain knowledge about the future. This should change how we live. None of us in this room are living consistently enough with these promises. I'm not, and you're not. None of us are. But let's grow in that this week. Now, hear me. let me give you a couple specifics. Third, live your life in light of the certain knowledge of the future. First, turn from sin and trust Jesus today. You'll be forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future. You'll be forgiven. He's promised. <laughs> Set your hope on the joy you will have in God forever. He's the rock that promises the rock. What are you looking forward to the most? What do you think about when you're discouraged or when you're feeling empty? Let's work on having our hope be set upon the joy we'll have in God forever. Let God's promise of joy comfort your sufferings. Joy is coming. Sufferings are temporary. Eternity is everlasting. So let God's promise of joy comfort your sufferings. Let God's promise of joy motivate your obedience. The way you live this afternoon can increase your joy in God forever. Obey him. Obey him. Give yourself to, to taking the gospel of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's what his purpose is. Align yourself with that purpose. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love your children. Show forth Christ's glory at your job. Forgive those who hurt you. Turn the other cheek. Be generous to the poor. Obey Christ. Let God's promise of joy motivate your obedience. And then finally, let God's promise of joy energize your battle against sin. Sin is hard to fight. Right? We're pretending if we say it's not. Just reading this week, Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities. We're wrestling. Are you wrestling with sin? Are you fighting the unbelief that rises up in, in your heart? Are you resisting the temptations that come? Let God's promise of joy energize your battle against sin. The battle against sin is hard, yes, but Jesus is worth it all. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd bring your power upon us through this word. And I pray that you'd grip our hearts now with the certain knowledge we can have about the future. 
that we would not be foolish, Lord, and keep living the way we were living, but that each of us right now, you'd impress upon us changes we need to make to align our lives with what we know about the future. Because nothing will stop you from fulfilling your promises. We have certain knowledge of the future. Change our hearts now. Give us wisdom. Set us free from foolishness so that we will live in sync with your promises, I pray. In Jesus' name.